I had an editor and editor that I used to work with by the name of Sandra Guzman. And she's like the Latina woman's Bible. She was part one of the editors of, of Latina, mag- Latina magazine. And she also did, I think it was Tempo in the New York Post. And she was like indirectly my, my, my mentor. Again, another strong woman. And I remember I said to her, I was like, so I, apparently like, I feel like I need to have a plan B. So I need to like, maybe I'll do hair. Maybe I do makeup because it's like full circle. Like, so I'm do clothing and then I do hair and makeup and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, okay, Oscar. So you're planning to fail. And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, you're telling the universe that there's a possibility that you're not going to make it as what you want to make it. And therefore you have a plan B. You're literally telling the universe you're planning to fail at what you're doing. And that's stuck with me forever. That's stuck with me forever. Dímelo, dímelo, mi gente. What's good? Welcome to another episode of the Quintueras podcast brought to you by Plural. As a quick reminder, on this podcast, the mission is to redefine professionalism. So every week we have a different guest join us for a very candid conversation around their experience between professionalism and authenticity. The goal is to give you the right representation to help you feel empowered, inspired, to start finally being your most authentic self, regardless of where you are. Speaking of guests, on this week's episode, we are joined by Oscar Montes de Oca, who is a celebrity fashion stylist and creative director. If you think about some of your favorite celebrities, he's probably dressed them. As a native New Yorker who has over a dozen years of experience in the game, his extensive work spans across not only the US, but international and Latin markets. Some of his clients include Mac, Ashley Graham, Formula X, Sephora, Diana Guerrero, the list goes on. And if you wanna see some of the reggaeton artists that he has worked with, be sure to check out his Instagram. For now, since you have a little bit more context into who Oscar is, let's get into this dope conversation. All right, so let's kick it off with the word authenticity. It's such a buzzword that you probably hear all the time, yet when you hear the word, what does it mean to you? Authenticity, bro, you started way too hard. Like, that's what we were gonna <laughs> like work ourselves up to that place. But authenticity, what do I think of when I hear authenticity? I hear someone that is very comfortable in their own skin that beats to their own drum and it's just themselves and doesn't want to be anything other than themselves. Oh, growing up, was it easy to beat to your own drum and live in that definition? Oh, that's a loaded question because you are, my understanding that you're Afro-Latino, right? You were raised in New York, right, as well? Mm -hmm. So we have that in common. So I was born and raised in the Bronx, South Bronx. Or like I like to say, because it sounds fancier when I say the southernmost tip of the Bronx. So bro. <laughs> so bro. Actually, <laughs> yeah, not far from there. How I think it, looking back, I don't think it was easy. I don't think it was difficult. I think it was appropriate, age appropriate. I got into my fights. I got bullied. I beat the bullies. I was an outcast. I was cool. I was authentic. I was all of these things. And they came with all of the growing pains self-hate, self-love, the bipolarness of being an adolescent and a teenager. Like, I think it was like in retrospect, looking back, I think it wasn't 
any worse or any better than anyone else. And I think it definitely provided the skill sets that I need to maneuver and to be who I am today. And I'm as cheesy as that may sound, I'm super blessed about it. Like, I'm like, I'm good. I'm so good because of it. Yeah, no, it's not cheesy at all. I think we all go through, I mean, we're kids growing up. Like, we learn so much about ourselves. Like, when you think about some of those early memories, what what comes to mind for you when you think about the fights or the bullying? I, I One of the things that first comes up, so my brother is five years my senior, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a couple of incidents where, like I got into fights and my brother was there and he did nothing, mm. absolutely nothing at all. At that point, that's what I understood. But I understood that he was also making sure no one jumped in, which is a term that we use in the hood. Uh. It's making sure that no one interrupts. A third person does not come in to attack one or the other person, team up with the other person. And he did that. And I think later on in years, I spoke to him about it or I understood it that it was also a thing about me just being able to hold my own. And so since I was a, a kid, I like, I don't go into fights. Like I don't go into confrontation, but I, I'm definitely non-confrontational. Like I'm not, I'm cool with the confrontation. I will always avoid it, but I'm cool. And I work well in that space because I've dealt with it. And it allows me to, with everything in life, just not avoid it and just confront it head on and allows me. And I think looking back, it allowed me to really hold my own and understand that I first need to be right with myself and look out like the first person that has to have your back is yourself. But that's such a fascinating, that's such a powerful image that you're painting though. It's like somebody in this sort of scuffle, violent act, whatever it is. And like, there's this person that you may look up to just based on age, right? Maybe even height or whatever. And they're not helping you. It's this moment where you're just like early as hell, where you're just like, I'm in some ways on my own, even though I have somebody next to me. In retrospect, I realized that they were helping me. They were giving me the best skills ever, like be able mm. to hold my own. Like I, I, you know, I'm boisterous. I can hold my own and I feel that I can have an opinion. I can say something and not be afraid to be intimidated because it's happened before. It's fine. Like I can get into fisticuffs. And Ooh. it's not, but I, I want to start, I, I want to say this, I'm very nonviolent. I'm very, one of those people that I believe in, like, if you see me down the street and in New York and even in Miami, I'm in Miami now, and I see people whose energy is weird right now and everybody's confrontational. And I saw that in New York, everyone was like supercharged and super confrontational. So I'm not that dude. I don't walk around with a chip on my shoulder. I don't, I'm not easily bothered by other people's thoughts and opinions of me. But I, when I say the, being able to defend myself is purely on the sense of not only defending myself, but I feel more importantly, as an adult now, what I tend to do is defend others. Like I'm cool with me, but I just can't see injustices, like see other people being mistreated or just bullied. Like that, that's not cool. And I'm a little dude. I'm five, seven. Let's really? add Yeah, I'm five, seven. I'm five, okay. seven. Yeah, yeah. And I you think get, you what, give off tall guy energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I definitely, I definitely like my Napoleon syndrome definitely manifests itself in injustices. Like, I just can't, like, I can't see people, like, being bullied or mistreated and, and not say anything. Or if I can, like, stop it, I will. I just feel like it's my obligation. I think we're our brother's keeper. So we have a responsibility for one another. Granted, granted, don't put yourself in harm's way. Like, you don't want to get yourself killed or shot. But if you can 
pacify the situation why not yeah and growing up in the south bronx i'm wondering like what kind of representation did you see around different professions like things that people did for a living and work so in inside the south bronx like while like the residents in the south bronx i didn't see many diversities like there was maybe a teacher or a few teachers home health aides like my mom my stepdad had his own business he had his own air conditioning and air conditioning and what is the other one machine repair he had yeah. his own little shop so he was a, a business owner my my uncles had businesses in in Mott Haven with the antique district so and that opened me up to like being able to go to apartments in in Sutton Place and Sutton Park Avenue and seeing apartments that when you get off the elevator like it's 12 doors and all of them are that apartment so inside the Bronx i i wouldn't say i was it was very diverse but it was people ultimately just hustling trying to do right by themselves first generation for the most part uh immigrants just trying to do the best that they can for their family and friends and then because of the businesses that uh the family had i was exposed to other people and it was also like okay this is this also exists and this is the other side of this coin i suppose Yo, for lack of a better explanation like that resonated like we did the fords and the rothschilds like apartments like refinishing some antiques and stuff like that like that was the type of shit i saw as a kid like going into these homes and being exposed to that yo that resonates with me because my grandma used to clean houses and i remember being like a little kid and she would often like take me right and she would just like buy some kfc be like sit your ass down in the corner let me go to work right mm -hmm. but I lived in the projects, so going over to these apartments on West End, on the Upper West Side, I'm like, yo, these, this is how people live? And I even remember when I grew up, I would often, like, walk the avenue of West End and just to go for walks, almost, like, manifesting this idea of, like, one day, maybe this will be me type of stuff. I'm wondering, like, what kind of impact did that have on you? Like, was it aspirational? It was definitely aspirational. And I think there was also some whitewashing involved there and mm -hmm. i and I'm, I'm speaking truly because for a really long time i thought white was right and i don't mean from the perspective of like i needed to be white i just thought that they were the gatekeepers and therefore everything had to go through them and as i've been exposed to more of us and more people of or more latino of position of power and wealth and in control that has been diminished and i've and i've been blessed to, to experience that but definitely aspiration in the sense of like oh, this, is, this world isn't this big, it is this big. And it allowed me to see that there's also other opportunities and other ways of thinking and seeing and what was standard norm for this little kid from the South Bronx isn't necessarily for the world. You feel me? Yeah. Who's that first person that you were just like, oh, so it's us too. Like, we got the power too. I remember, I don't, and this, I'm just saying that comes up to mind because otherwise if i sit here to try to think it'll take quite a bit of time <laughs> but i remember my uncle had this restoration business like i said in mott haven right off of the bruckner and it was restorations and the there was a lady that owned one of the antique stores right next to his restoration shop and she was an african-american woman probably in her 50s um she wasn't openly gay, but you could clearly tell that she was a, a gay woman, lesbian. And to see her like acquiring the pieces that she was acquiring, like the antiques, the type of clientele that she had, the way she expressed herself, the way she moved, her pride, her dignity, her whole aura was just like, 
this is interesting. Because I had, I don't get me wrong, I grew up around a lot of strong Dominican women. And uh, my family, they were alpha women. They weren't mm -hmm. alpha men. They was alpha women. So I've always been around strong women and I really admire and love and I and kind of gravitate towards strong women. But there was something different about her because she wasn't only strong in like her opinions and the way she moved. She was also powerful. Aside from her cipher, like her home, she was also powerful around other people. And I found that really interesting and it was definitely intriguing. So if you did a comparison of yourself at that time, looking at this woman, what do you think you wanted to emulate, right? Like what were you not comfortable or confident showing or whatever it is compared to her that you were like, yo, one day I want to be that unapologetically me. I think she was just a pot unapologetically her. I think that I think the power power in the sense of like, not that she was stepping on people's backs, but the authority that she commanded without being egocentric or narcissistic was interesting. Like there was just, it was just in her nature. You, it reminded me of like, looking back to it, like it was like Felicia Rashad and the Cosby, like this okay. look that she would give this demeanor, like this elegance, this refinement. It was like all of the above. Like, I think that was such an attractive thing and such an alluring thing. And I come from like, my mom was like, again, is an alpha woman. She did everything in her power to make sure that her kids were number one priority. There was nothing, there was, we never needed or needed of anything. Like mm -hmm. nothing. There's not a day that I can say that we came home and we thought that the lights were gonna be turned off, that we didn't, we had a second freezer. And that's hood wealthy. Like <laughs> he had a second freezer, like a free, like just meats. Like my mom would go shopping at the grocery store at the supermarket then the butcher and then the produce like we 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 ate whatever we wanted like it was we needed nothing but she was a hard-working woman and she was a slave to her job and her job was ex ex beating her down and the difference between that vision of a strong powerful woman was the opposite she had people working for her she had people working for her. she had people at, at their at her disposal that whatever she would say or do they respected and did so i think it was different so for me it was like oh okay my mom is strong but there's also levels to strong and there's different ways you can be strong and powerful that yeah i get it. i could like picture her in the shop but for you like seeing this like what did you think career-wise were you just like i want to do what she does or was she just like some sort of figure that you wanted to mirror, but in a different field that you were interested in? In retrospect, I don't know. I don't, in retrospect, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I was definitely intrigued. And I think it continues with the fact that, like I mentioned, I love strong women. And although she was African-American, she literally looked like us. And now with me, with all these grays, she definitely looked like me. I think it was just like, there's, there was always, there was also, there was always something anthropological about me. There was always a need to like watch and listen and be quiet and observe. And I don't know in retrospect what that was used for, but it was just always in my nature. Like maybe now that I think about it, like I always like when I'm building a story of like telling a story through closing, like I tell a story in my head. I'm like, this person is this and the other. And maybe that's just 
maybe that's just bad story for how I style and how I work with clients. But I don't quite understand why I was so intrigued. Other than the way that she moved was just so graceful for me. What was her name? I feel like it was Grace. I don't quote me on that, but I feel like her name was <laughs> That would be Grace. fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, would, it would be, it would make sense though. But yeah, I don't know why I was so intrigued by it, but it was just, and then also like, yeah, I don't know. I love that you mentioned the clothing, the styling, the fashion. Like, when did you get into that field or even see that as a potential opportunity for you? So I clearly have a really bad memory because I remember <laughs> like four or five years ago, I was hanging out with my aunt that lives in the Dominican Republic. And she was like, isn't that interesting? Like how you ended up working in fashion. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, which you want to fight? No. <laughs> so I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, you always said that you were, you wanted to be a designer for big women, for curvy women, for plus women. And anyone that knows me on a personal level would tell you that one of my favorite things is styling women's with, women with curves. Like curvy mm -hmm. women is to me like the dopest. Like, I don't know. It's a body that I know I'm familiar with. I grew up seeing it. It's like, so like when I was working with Ashley Graham, it was like, okay, this is, this looks like any other Thea or my mom when she was in her thirties, you know what I mean? Or this is like any other Dominican chick that would, that I would see on the island. Like this wasn't hard for me. This wasn't hard for me. What was hard for me was like the zeros, the double zeros, the size zeros. Like it was just like, okay, how do you put cloth on? How do you dress this without body shaming anyone clearly? But yeah, it's, it, I, I don't know. I think I feel like, I don't know. I've never really had a plan and I know that sucks and it's horrible to, but I think it manifested itself. I think I wanted to be in fashion from the time I was a kid. I was just, the, I am the child of immigrant parents and I went to college for business administration, social work, because that's what the, that's what the family members did. They, the, the ones that went to college all had like MSWs and stuff like that. So I didn't think that I can work in fashion. I was just like, I needed to get a real degree or, or a really good trade. And, and that was it. And then I remember I was working for Sun America that was owned by AIG at the time. I don't think Sun America exists anymore. And I was running a department and I would just always be tired, like tired of like tired to go to work, but I would get my work done super early. Everybody got their work done super early and I would literally fall asleep in my, in my <laughs> cubicle. And it was just like one day, my cousin, a cousin of mine by the name of Jessica was like, why don't you become a stylist? Because everyone would ask me for advice on styling and stuff like that. And I literally like two months later, I cashed in my 401k and I didn't look back. And that's been like, I want to say like 15 years now. So it, it's like this, what people call energy maintenance is like, this either gives you energy or takes your energy. And maybe that early, those early careers that you started exploring was like literally taking your energy instead of giving it to you. And it's fascinating. Like here you are being exhausted, not feeling fulfilled potentially. And it sounds like you always had that in you to like to style and people are telling you like, yo, like you should do this. Maybe you were doing it on the side, but go back to that like first corporate job. <laughs> what did your swag look like going into it? Like, how did you show up? So. I have to admit, I was at the time I was, <laughs> I'm going to date myself tremendously. I was wearing like pink. I was wearing Kenneth Cole when Kenneth mm -hmm. Cole was something. I would go to Club Monaco, a, a Banana Republic. Like I was like literal, like cute as fuck. 
I would say. Like going for office, like with pink the brand, the button downs from pink. I was using lavender colors. I barely use anything that's not black anymore. But and it was like I was definitely looking like I was looking at some I was definitely looking like I was part of the executive program in most of these places. And it was weird because it was like obviously you are some entry level or two steps away from entry level and we don't pay you enough to look the way that you do and I still did it. And it was important for me to present myself. Like it was always important to for present myself and I knew that I did know. I knew that being a while around all of these pale faces, I needed to present myself well because I am not going to I'm not going to give you fuel for whatever you think I am and where I come from and how I'm supposed to act. And I'm going to immediately dismantle that by the first few seconds of the way that you look at me. Yeah. And that was super important for me. That was always important for me. Like it was always like it reminded me of this saying in this this saying all my Dominican family used to say it was like it's, it's better for people to think you're an idiot than open your mouth and prove them right. So <laughs> for me it was like you might think you know who I am, but my presentation is not is going to dismantle that and not let you continue that sentence of proving that I am this ghetto ass person that's uneducated that comes yeah. from a family that doesn't know any better. So that was really important for me. But me going to work dressed properly in corporate America was allowing myself to to get one step closer to whatever goal I wanted at that point because it didn't allow people to focus on other stereotypes. Like there was yeah. one stereotype that was broken immediately. And then I would do something that was really odd and in retrospect now I know why I did it. Like so my sister and my nieces and nephews were blonde little kids, right? And then my brother was probably two shades darker than I am. And my whole family was like the reading rainbow of colors. And I would put pictures of my family on my desk. And it, it was very interesting to see people when they would come to my desk or my office and see the pictures. And they were like, so who are these blonde people, these white blonde people? I was like, oh, that's my sister and my, my nieces and nephews. And who's this African-American brother? I was like, that's my brother. And there was like, and who's this person that looks like Pakistani? Oh, that's my mom. And it was always, it was, I, I, and in retrospect, I knew what I was doing then. And it was breaking all these stereotypes and we weren't, you weren't going to put me in a box. I wasn't going to allow you to put me in a box. And it was just going to allow you to just take me for who I am and either love me because of who I presented myself to be or, but you weren't going to, you weren't going to put me in a box of what your preconceived notions of what I am and what I come from. I love all of that. And I think it's fascinating that in your early corporate experience, you came in with these bright, bold colors. Oh, absolutely. And I had someone on the podcast that used to work in like finance or whatever. And he would come up not in the bright colors, but he would come up in, in a fire fitted suit. And in his performance reviews, people would say that, he's doing too much he's cocky he's arrogant and he's like just because of how i'm dressed like how did you get all that and also like why are we talking about this like can you look at the the performance that i'm doing like i'm wondering for you like how do you think you were received so i have a cousin let me let's pause for a second let me piggyback on what you just said i have a cousin that while i was in new york i met up with and we've had this conversation for maybe two or three times since i saw her last week and one of the things that she was mentioning was that she needs to change the way she dresses to accommodate her coworkers because right. she was getting the way the looks from people and somebody said that she was bougie 
she was walking in there with her Rolex. She was going there with her Louis Vuitton, her Yves Saint Laurent bag, or her, her Chanel bag, and they would look at her. And they would be like, so this chick is bougie. So she's already had two situations where a white counterpart would be like, oh, you're just bougie, girl. You're just bougie, girl. And she would see things, and they would be like, oh, and that's amazing. And they would make little statements of like, she wouldn't do that because that's not who she is. It just happens to be that my cousin works really hard. She's really financially stable and she's great at saving money. And she knows the deal and she plans literally for every one of those items. And she's, it's being used against her. And it's interesting because when I was in corporate America, I'm 45. Let's start by that. I'm 45. When I was in corporate America, I wasn't going with Gucci and Prada and Chanel, but I was definitely going in there as definitely sharp and tailored as senior officers in that company. Um, so I think, and the colors were different though. Cause a lot of people wear like the dark blues, the grays, yes. the blacks. Yes. But I'm a fan of colors. So like a pur- a powder purple works great mm-hmm. on me. A pink looks great on me. Don't get me wrong. I did wear my grays and my blues, but I was definitely using colors that complimented me. And if for me at that time, it worked in my favor because they would be like, yo, Oscar presents himself. Well, Oscar speaks well. Oh God, yeah. Which I got is like, I, uh, I just want to stab somebody. But oh, I, yo, is... when people used to tell me that, I used to think it was a compliment because I grew up hearing because... people that were not articulate, right? And I used to be like, oh my God, thank you so much. I've been working on this, right? But eventually I'm like, oh, you're surprised. Yeah. That's the part. That's just it. Remember what I mentioned to you. We grew up thinking that white is right. Right. And it's just, I'm not... I don't know. I want to get into the origins of that or how it came about, like, and whatnot. But I think when we start, when people start complimenting us to the, along the lines of like, you are similar to us, our white counterparts, our white brothers and sisters, like, is this like a compliment? Why is that a compliment? Like, I'm cool right. with who, I'm definitely dope the way I am. I am amazing the way I am. I come from a very rich and diverse culture. Off, off, look, off camera, we were just talking about like, the painter behind me, we were talking about, I had mentioned to you, you were like, you complimented. And I was like, oh, she's Swiss Dominican. And you were like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And I said, that's, that's, that happens a lot. Like within my family, I have like four or five different European countries that we, I have cousins with. I have German, I have Italian, I have Swiss, but I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I do that often. Oh, so I guess what I was trying to say was like, no, I forgot. I'm sorry. It's all, it's all good. Well, far. Well, go back, go back to like, how do you think you were received with like, how you dressed though? Like going back to like how my friend was being labeled cocky and all these kind of things. You gave the example with your cousin, but what about you? Like when you started? I was received great. I think it worked in my favor. I think it was, I also have a lot of self-deprecating humor attached to me. (laughs) So I make people really comfortable. People feel comfortable around me and people say dumb that they would normally not say to other people. But I would always store it in the bank and know what to do with that. And I'm not a manipulative person or someone that that used, but I would definitely take a tally of it and make sure that I remember this because I'm not going to get surprised later about your personality or who you are because you've already shown me who you were. But again, for me, it was it, it worked in my favor. And I think it also had to do with the fact that here's a stocky little brown boy that has self-deprecating humor. I think I, I wasn't too much of a threat for a lot of people. And I think obviously your friend is clearly a massive threat for others and they just don't know how to they don't know how to deal with it and that's how they're gonna they're gonna label him cocky and like what are you supposed to do like is this like some 
is this some like like some real like is he supposed to be this passive individual that gives like yes master yes sir like what are we what is like what is that what is it the outcome of telling someone something like that you're right and it's one of those things that like am i threatening or are you threatened oh and that's like a that's a and that's a personal that's that's like a you problem not a me problem oh yes it definitely sounds like a you problem yeah i'm so in what parts or in, in what ways do you think you weren't comfortable being yourself in some of these early career experiences sounds like mostly you were comfortable but i think i was comfortable i was comfortable with learning i was good i was good at like as cliche as it sounds like i was cool with faking it till you make it i was always adaptable but in what ways did you fake it though i don't i the social norms i would say Mm, tell me more a lot of the social norms a lot of the conversations i think you touched up on something of like you speak well that type of thing so it, it, it allowed me to to use the proper terminologies where i would be respected and not looked down at and I think yeah. that that helped me, like hearing NPR at the desk, hearing NPR, getting culturally assimilated to these people. Um, oh, I used to like study on the weekends, white popular American shows, culture, whatever. Like instead of watching shows like Insecure, which I love, I would binge watch shows like Riverdale. But you see, when I was growing up, we didn't have many of any other than that. So that was like, it was either Don Francisco or I'm going to see Growing Pains. Like, like just something uberly white. So I think for me, it was just like, I guess, I guess I didn't have to study it. It was already part of the regular programming, but I get it. Television definitely helped. PBS definitely helped. NPR definitely helped. It definitely helped with um, being able to understand these people and from what perspective. And in retrospect now, like, it's just like, I hate the fact that I've used retrospect like 20 times already. <laughs> but <laughs> looking back, I, I, I get the fact that there was clearly something wrong with that. Like, why do I have to, why do I have to adapt to anyone? Why can't I just be my authentic self? And I think now as a person, like I walk into a room and I am who I am and I don't want to be anyone else. I really love me. I really love me. And I don't mean this in a narcissistic kind of way. Like I'm not going to put myself above anyone. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to act like I'm superior. My employees can't treat it like, like they're my partners. Like I'm not, but I really love myself. I've loved who I've become and what I've worked on. And I might not be my biggest hype man, but I quietly love who I am. And I'm never going to be anything other than who I am. But in, but definitely back in the days, it's just like all this that we had to do in order to like just have a seat or even be considered for a seat. Like, are you kidding me? Like my 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 experience, my hard work, my my numbers, should speak for themselves. So when was the moment for you when you went from fake it till you make it to this, like, I love myself? I think it's just like, as I got older, I think in my 30s and my late 30s, I was just like, you know what? I'm dope. I I started seeing what other people saw in me. Oh, so what were people saying in you that you were just like, ah, so whatever. People, so I don't do well with compliments. I, to this day, I don't do well with compliments. Like if you were to start with giving my resume or talking about how great I am, blah, blah, blah. Like I would probably like turn into a troll. I'm just like, I don't know what, what, like, I don't know how to handle that information. I don't know what to do with it. It's just, I'm not good at it. And I think, I don't know where that stems from. I probably should get therapy for it, but I just think that I don't even know how to, I just, I started just literally believing what other people thought about me. Like, what, what did people say not, about you in particular believe, though? But I appreciate it and say, 
like like people were like, oh, you're so great. Like what you're doing, I love what you're doing. What you did is epic. This person looked amazing. This You're the first person that did this. You're working with this client. You're working with this company. You're doing this. I see you here. I see you there. And they were like, this must be amazing and exciting. And I'm like, this is just, this is me going into the office type. It's like, I, yeah. it's a job. It's a job. Yeah. I'm. It took me probably like 10 years to start using the term celebrity stylist. I was just like, what? Like, I feel like to a certain extent, that was me telling people I thought I was a celebrity. No, I am not. I am absolutely not a celebrity. I don't move that way. I don't consider myself that way. I am not. I work with celebrities. My estheticianist, which is Mamie McDonald, she does like Jay-Z's face, Angela Bassett's face. And I remember one day I was getting a face shoot from her. Yeah, I, I get face shoot. Uh, it's all good. Yes, we have to. We have to take care of, of the skin. Mamie was like, oh my God, Mamie, I was doing exactly what people did to me, to Mamie. And I was like, Mamie, that's amazing. You, like Jay-Z and Jay-Z flew out his helicopter. You get the Hamptons and you're there with B and you're amazing. And Angela Bassett is your best friend. And you have all these celebrity clients. And she was like, honey, I watch people's faces. And that to me was like, that was like everything because a few years back, I knew this stylist by the name of Garrett Khan, who had like stolen like millions and millions of dollars from Harry Winston, was dressing Missy. This is by the days when he was doing working with Missy, Celine Dion. Like this was the dude that made um, like hip hop fabulous looks. Um, and this dude started believing his life. And he started like he literally got arrested at the time got deported, ended up working for the royal family in, in, in Dubai, but whatever. But he started believing it. And I think to me, by mainly saying, like, I watch people's faces, allowed me to put things into perspective. This is a career. This is a job. And I think we have to be really clear about not starting to believe the that the people that we do things with makes us. So, like, by osmosis, I am not a celebrity. I'm dope. I get to work with dope people, but I'm not a celebrity. Yeah, so I, I, I get what you're saying, though, in some ways, like for me it, in a similar way, like it's difficult for me to celebrate my accomplishments because the way that my anxiety is, I'm always thinking like 10 steps ahead. I'll give you an example, like I, I, for South by Southwest, like I, I was a speaker and people okay. were like, oh, that's congrats. so dope. Like, yo, exactly. Congrats. Yo, you know how many years people wait to do that? And I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to be talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? People look at me like I'm crazy, but it's like a comb for me i've realized or like this is something i'm still working on it's a combination of like what makes me good or my strength is like continuing to think about what's next the ambition but i'm it's not about like or doing or other but like and i can also like try to celebrate but i'm struggling with that i'm struggling with that too so i'll ask you a question right mm -hmm. you just answered that right and i'm gonna ask you to explore a little further is that mm -hmm. really why you're you're not good with it because I had an epiphany the other day, and I was going to share that with you as well. And I, I want to see what your thoughts are. I'm sorry we're shifting the dynamics a bit, but is it really that? Is there more to that? And by the way, we can no, you're not shifting the dynamics. We're having a conversation. Oh, uh, great, great, cool, cool. Yeah, 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 it's all good. For me, I, right what, at the time when I was doing that, I think I was operating from a, like a financial insecurity mindset. I think I'm always operating with that. Even if I have a bunch of money in the savings and I'm making money, whatever, I think like I'm always operating from that mindset. So for me, it's like, yeah, that was dope. But like, where's the next opportunity so I can make more and I could do more. So that's like how I think about it. OK, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So the other day I had this epiphany about one of the reasons why I think I don't do well with it. 
and I don't like receiving it publicly and I don't like talking about it publicly. I think it has to do with, so you said you grew up in the projects, right? Mm-hmm. Where in New York City, where in the projects do you? Funny enough, on the Upper West Side. So it was this wealthy ass neighborhood, but I grew up in the project. So it was this dynamic where like, I grew up in poverty, but down the street, Macaulay Culkin had an apartment. It's this weird cool. dynamic, yeah. So is it free to say that you also had friends that were in the same financial situation that you were in? Yeah. You grew up with it. So I grew up in the South Bronx, like I mentioned before. I think, and I'm blessed. I have a, a group of friends that be, did really well in finance, became doctors, some became civil engineers, but most of them didn't get out. They didn't get out of the hood. Even with the success. No, this is the ones that I just mentioned. Oh, yes. I just mentioned four. I mentioned four, right? Or three or four. But most of the friends that I grew up or people I grew up around did not get out. So this is going to sound cheesy, but I think there's some sort of survival remorse. Survival's guilt, I think. Yeah. Guilt, sorry. Survival's guilt. I think there's a little bit of tax to that, which is like, like I was just at the, I went to visit my mom and I saw a couple of friends that I grew up with. And I was just like, they're still there. They're still there. Their struggles are the same that they were 20 years ago. And don't get me wrong. I'm not a wealthy man by far. I make decent money, but I'm not a wealthy person by far, but I definitely got out. And I think to a certain extent, I felt some sort of way to know that there are others that you grew up with that are still in the same situation. And some of them are actually in worse situations. So that was, that's, I think, one of the other reasons why I don't do well with that. Because I also understand that my brothers and sisters that I grew up with are still in the same struggle. Shit, I still have family that are still in the struggle. Yeah. So it's hard for me to, like, celebrate, which is it's silly to think that way, but it's just who I am. I still have family that are still in the struggle. So for me, it's just like, How do I, like, I don't post a lot of my personal life on social media. And it's because of that. It's just like, how do I do that? How do I go around posting all that stuff when people are still struggling? Where an extra $50 bill in their bank account can make a huge difference. So do you you celebrate in private at all? I do. I do. I do. I celebrate. (laughs) Yes, I do. I celebrate quietly. I celebrate in private. I celebrate with myself and my brain. I celebrate with those people around me, the people that are around me. When I'm around other people, I show them love. I show people love. I love hosting. I love paying people homage. I love pe- making people feel comfortable. I love that. And that's my way of celebrating because I'm good. I'm good right now. So for me to be able to help other people be good is such a reward. Even if it's for a few minutes that they're with me, a few hours, or if, if financially I can help somebody, again, for the, don't be calling me. I, ain't got no extra, um, but, I don't got but, a place to stay. I don't got, you know, I, I got an extra room. I got nothing. All this shit is borrowed. This is, this, so for me, whenever I can help, I will always help. I think it's my responsibility. It's my social obligation to do so. But you do know that by us having this conversation and when I give you your flowers in the intro that I'm going to record on an, at another time mm-hmm. and I tell people all the work that you did, like, you may feel a little awkward, but I'm going to definitely cringe. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to do exactly what you want. Like, you don't have to give anyone any money. You can literally like you're going to be representation for somebody to be like, 
I, I want to do what he's doing. I'm scared to go after it because I'm chasing what my family has told me to chase. I'm in this class. I'm falling asleep at work. I'm, I'm bored. I don't feel fulfilled. I, I feel like I can't be myself. I'm faking it till I make it. I want to do what he's doing. And you're going to give someone permission to finally chase that shit just by sharing your experience. Like, well, that's powerful. Thank you. I, that I'll definitely own. That I'll definitely own. And I also wanted to add something. So I'm dyslexic. I grew up dyslexic. I found out mm. that I was dyslexic at the age of 10. So traditional learning wasn't my friend. And mm. I would force myself. I was in junior college for like four years, bro. Like I was trying my best and it wasn't as some grades, some courses I would really excel in and then I would get bored and I would change my major. And that happened about three or four times probably. And I bring that up because I realized that my success wasn't going to be in behind of a, a desk. Like you can be successful. You can help. You can also break generational chains as well. Doing creative arts, art things. I will also have to admit I was broke till about four or five years ago. Like maybe really? five years ago, I was like struggling. Like I was still borrowing money from like family. Like five years ago, five, six years ago to be exact, I was wow. struggling. I had major clients and I was still not making enough. Like it was, and I'm not that person that I'm like, I'm going around like, because my clients wear Chanel, I'm wearing Chanel, like not at all. Like I'll, I'm not, I don't live the lifestyle is ultimately what I'm trying to say. And, and I still was struggling to like about, without exaggerating about five six years ago like not a savings i had a prepaid credit card i it was just a lot it was like i was struggling and one of the things that i knew i didn't know how it was going to happen but i knew i couldn't give up i knew i couldn't give up and it was always like i don't know if you ever seen these social media memes where you see this dude pushing a boulder and right by right when it's hit the wall that it's going to break and uh, i don't know what's behind it but something amazing that's behind that he gives up. Like, I always felt like I couldn't stop because I, just if I take one more step, it's going to happen. And I knew that I didn't know. I was persistent. My family would be like, hey, so why don't you just become a career person in retail? Like, yeah, there's people in retail that make six figures. I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I need to stay focused. I need to stay on this. I had an editor and editor that I used to work with by the name of Sandra Guzman. And she's like the Latina woman's Bible. She was part one of the editors of, of Latina, Mag Latina Magazine. And she also did, I think it was Tempo in the New York Post. And she was like indirectly my, my, my mentor. Again, another strong woman. And I remember I said to her, I was like, so I, I apparently, like, I feel like I need to have a plan B. So I need to like, maybe I'll do hair. Maybe I do makeup because it's like full circle. Like, so I'm do clothing and then I do hair and makeup and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, okay, Oscar, so you're planning to fail. And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, you're telling the universe that there's a possibility that you're not going to make it as what you want to make it. And therefore you have a plan B. You're literally telling the universe you're planning to fail at what you're doing. And that stuck with me forever. That stuck with me forever. And it was just like, I couldn't take it out of my head. And I was just like, no, I was like, I would look at other businesses to start to make money. And it was just like, oh, it's like, no, I need to continue with this. I need to do this. This is what I need to do. And I kept at it. And honestly, it's paid off. I'm busy. I don't get to sleep. I don't have any personal life, but I'm so happy at making my clients and making amazing work, amazing art with super cool people.
Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode of the Can't Do It As podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do us a favor. Like, share, comment, wherever you're listening, please leave a rating and review. This just helps ensure that these experiences get heard by as many people as possible. And that's the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you. See you next time.